Ladies and gentlemen, now boarding for Latitude, the travel photography podcast on the Improve Photography Network. And now your hosts, Brian McGuckin and Brent Bergherm. Welcome back, everyone. This is Latitude, the travel photography podcast, and I am your host, Brent Bergherm. And today I am joined with a guest. I don't know if you want to call this an interviewee or just a guest host, how we're going to call this. But I have Greg Benz with me today. Greg, thank you for being on with me. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Brian is off to, where is he, Norway and Paris and a few other places. So he's off uh, gallivanting around Europe a little bit, just like I was a few weeks ago. And uh, so anyway, thank you so much for coming on. Let's get started. We have a couple of great topics, uh, a few great topics for you folks to listen about today. And our first one is actually a really quick announcement. For my company, Brent Rents Lenses, I actually have been doing free Saturdays for a while now, and it's automatic, and I've decided to extend it through December. So if you were to place an order at any time, for any time, I should say, there's no code required, it's just automatic. So just get on, and if they're interested in renting a lens, and it will be free Saturdays. So if you just need it for the weekend, it'll only be a two-day rental, so on and so forth. So check it out and see what you think. Another thing we wanted to look at is, I think some people were interested in, is um, a few lessons I have here. I'm calling it lessons and inspirations from Croatia. There's a few things that I want to share about my trip. Greg, have you been to Croatia at all? Uh, I've actually uh, been there twice, one of which was uh, an insane road trip where I went to pretty much every country in the region, did 14 countries in three weeks. Oh my goodness, that would be great. That's something. Please chime in as as we talk uh, talk about some of the cities. You know, please chime in. That would be awesome. What countries? Uh, you know, so we're talking about Serbia and probably Montenegro and Slovenia as well. Yeah, we we hit literally everything in that area, other than about Moldova is the thing that got cut. Okay. But we, were, we were all the way down to Albania. Nice. Uh, went through Kosovo, which is kind you know? of interesting because we you can't rent a car and drive through all those countries. So we actually. Right leased a brand new Peugeot for three weeks, which is pretty much like a rental in terms of pricing. But when you try and bring in your own car with a temporary registration to Kosovo, it gets interesting. Oh, I bet. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. The rental car companies, they're really picky on that kind of thing. So my trip, I started in Zadar, as listeners probably are familiar with that place, as I've talked about it a few times. But of course, here we're talking about what it was like to shoot in some of these places. So I started in Zadar, that's right on the coast, the Adriatic Sea, and a little bit farther north um, from Split. So if, you, if you're looking at a map, you'll see Split, that's one of the biggest cities, uh, the biggest on the coast. And so just go a little bit north of that and you'll come into Zadar. And I found that city to be a nice old town, but it wasn't that super pristine. It wasn't everything is just uh, super beautiful, super old feeling old town. But it also wasn't overrun by tourists like mad, so it was a nice balance, I think. Uh, you've got some old churches, of course, some old cobblestone streets to photograph, and then it's a little peninsula, so you've got lots of water features around, whether it's boats, whether it's the trees along the water, just lots of neat things to photograph there. However, I also got inundated with a huge rainstorm, and my plans had to change. And so this is something I've also talked about, and that is being flexible and trying not to let the weather bother you, you know, shoot according to the weather. Well, when the buses don't run, the taxis don't run, the kids stay home from school, there's not much that I can do to get myself up, could have done to get myself up to Plitvis Lakes like I was planning to on Monday. And this was when Hurricane Irma was pummeling Florida, Croatia, the whole country was covered with a big, huge rainstorm. So my plans got changed. I stayed in Zadar a little bit longer and that allowed me to get out to ride the ferry out to one of the other locations. That's, you know, just a small island out a little bit away from it. So it was all right. But moving on to Plitvis Lakes, is that a place that you happen to stop at, Greg, when you when you were on your trip? No, we, we moved through pretty fast, so we didn't okay. go nearly as deep as you. We, we hit Split and we, we hit Dubrovnik. So yeah, yeah. You, you've, you've got some cool places here I'd love to check out next yeah. time I get a chance. Awesome. Yeah, they're great places. Well, Plitvis Lakes, I ended up becoming a day tripper, which I absolutely hated because, uh, again, I couldn't get myself up there to just stay there and, and to spend the day and a half that I had planned. So I only was able to spend about four hours there, and that was kind of terrible. And I wasn't able to shoot crowd-free. But if you look it up, uh, do a nice image search, Plitvis Lakes is not about the lakes. It's about the waterfalls. And it is just phenomenal how many are there, how big the place is, 
is just over and over and over, just great variety of waterfalls. It's just a wonderful place to shoot. I was able to come away with some really good keeper images, and so I'm really glad I was able to do that. But just imagine what we could do. The park opens at 7 in the morning, and so, you know, the day trippers, they don't show up until maybe 11 or so, 10.30 possibly. So you'd have about three hours almost of just almost no one in the park comparatively. And then it closes at like 7 o'clock as well. And so... At the end of the day, from about four o'clock when those people leave, uh, all the way till seven, that I missed out on that opportunity because of the weather, and so that's too bad. But still, great place to shoot. So, so if you want to spend more time there, what do you do? Do you camp, or is there like lodging in the park? Yeah, thank you. There's three hotels that are right in the park and very close to the entrance gates. And then also, what I had done because the hotels were all booked up when I was making my reservations. There is actually a campsite about six or seven kilometers away, and they uh, most of, of European camping, much of it is, you know, you're in your RVs or something like that, uh, but they also had these, um, these bungalows, and so I was going to just rent a, a little bungalow for two days. That's just a, a little cabin with a bed and a place to plug in my battery charger, and that was about it, but they also had a big cafeteria on site, and so, you know, I wasn't going to go hungry. And since I was going to rent a car as well, I would have had the flexibility I needed. But since that didn't happen and I just rode, you know, took a tour from from Zadar, that's that's what happened. So anyway, after after that, went on to the city of Shibanek. That's just down the way a little bit. And that's a really nice city, but its claim to fame is it's really close to another national park for Kirka uh, National Park. That has some nice waterfalls. And I liked it, but I don't think it's worth it to, um, you know, if it's on your way and it's convenient, certainly it's worth it to go. But it's if you have a choice between the two, absolutely go to Plitvis. So much greater variety, so much better uh, as far as um, just what you have there and, and how much time you can spend there. Uh, Kirka also has a boat ride that you can take up to this little monastery. It takes about 45 minutes to get out there, and the boat ride's not bad, but there's not much to shoot on the way out there. And then you're given 30 minutes on the island. It's this tiny island with a monastery. And then you can come back. And I just, again, it was nice. It's uh, something to do, but it wasn't that big magnet photographically uh, for me to think about. And then from Shibanek on Friday morning, I took the very early bus to Trogir. And that is just outside of Split, very close to Split, but this tiny little island, it was the best old town. It was the best everything, I think, really came together in Trogir. As far as the lighting, as far as the weather, all that kind of stuff, the people, everything. It's just a really small thing, really small place, and it's just awesome to shoot. Highly recommend going to Trogear. I'm, I'm looking at it on my phone here, and, and it looks awesome. It kind of reminds me of the style of a lot of the buildings in Old Dubrovnik. It looks really cool. Yeah, that's one of the neat things about that location is there is so much influence by the Venetians that as you go down the coast, there's lots of similarity between them. Dubrovnik, though, used to be Ragusa. They were in competition with Venice. Uh, so there are some very subtle differences between the two. But as far as, you know, overall, just a, a glance, certainly they're extremely similar. And Trogir, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard for me to speak highly enough about it. It's just a wonderful place. Very, very small, very easy and accessible, and just lots of great places to shoot in Trogir. And then I continued in the midday on Friday to split. And the big draw there is Diocletian's palace, which is he was the last emperor of Rome to persecute the Christians. And so when he retired, he kicked back over and uh, kicked back in uh, split and just relaxed there in his monstrous palace. And then now residents still live there, but it's been taken over by very high-end international luxury brands. And for me, it was just a little bit overwhelming. Uh, I understand, too, I came in on Friday afternoon. Let's face it, a lot of people are going to be there. Even for just trying to do people photography, it was so overcrowded. I, I just, it just wasn't as enjoying as I was, uh, as I was hoping it to be. And, they and did that, have, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, Split, uh, of the whole three weeks we were driving around that region, Yeah, Split was the one place that I thought was just an utter disappointment. I didn't like yeah. anything about it. I couldn't wait to get out of there. The with the um, the cruise ships coming in there. Yes. It has developed the worst possible tourism scenario with just signage and trinkets and masses and unless you're a history buff and you just really need to dive into yeah. the locations there, I just feel like it's been stripped of any charm. Yes, I will completely agree with that. It's just 
it's a great place to shoot the early morning. If you know you got some time to shoot the early morning between transits and the like, I ended up doing just early morning and, and late afternoon, and I used it as a little bit of a um, transit hub, which you're going to do if you're riding public transportation. You're going to be going through split, but other than that, like you said, stripped of any charm. I agree, and it's it's really sad because I was there 12 years ago. Oh my goodness, it was it was absolutely awesome, uh, and it's been changed so incredibly much. One good thing for me, as listeners probably also know, I'm a vegetarian, and I like to shout out to all those who are in the minority of of uh, vegetarianism. But there are actually a couple of really good solely vegetarian restaurants there now, so there has been something good coming out of all that, all those people visiting and whatnot. So I did appreciate that. I did spend the weekend in Split. I had a room. I was using Airbnb almost for everything. And so I had a room just a little bit to the east of downtown. It's just slightly up the hill there, which is not a very big hill at all. And I should say Old Town. And so on Saturday, I take Saturdays off, even when I'm traveling. And I actually slept till 1130. But you know, when you're waking up at 330 in the morning and you're staying up late and all this kind of thing, it takes a it takes a toll on the body. And so I finally got out about 1130, walked up Marion Hill, which is to the west. Very nice little uh, park to just kind of relax. And you get a great overview of the city as well. So if, if you're going to be there, head on up Marion Hill in the evening, you're going to get a nice view of the, of the city. I then took the ferry to Havar Island and specifically Starry Grad. I had been there 12 years ago as well. And anytime you get a chance to get out to the islands, you're going to find something awesome, I think. And when I was there, I had this guy, he's like, hey, you want to see a distillery? And I was like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but sure, why not? You know, this is an opportunity I have. Well, he was actually talking about a lavender distillery. And I was just, as the ugliest piece of machinery you'll ever see, but my goodness, (laughs) it smelled so good. So I got a little picture of that. But he then said, hey, I can take you to the last section of the wall from the Greek civilization of Pharos. And it was from, he said, about 400 BC. It's actually around 382. Uh, when they when they were uh, going strong. And so he took me on this back road to knock on this lady's door and to open her garage. And I got this picture of this last section of wall, according to him. Well, I had printed those pictures off and I was hoping I went searching for that place. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it because I didn't have GPS on my camera back then. So, oh well. But I did find, I rented a moped and they've got so many locations on a map that you can just go right to. It was really nice to go see some of those places. I then went, made my way by bus over to Havar Town, which is the place that most everyone goes to when you're on Havar Island, and got up to the Spanish Fort. Lots of great places to to photograph down into the city as you're overlooking it as the sun sets. Just a really, really great place. So Havar Town is a great place, good old town. Uh, it's almost overrun by tourists. Uh, certainly in August, everything is going to be overrun by tourists, but it was a pretty good place. And lavender is huge there. If you can get there in June, uh, then you'll get out to some fields possibly and shoot some lavender. Did you have something there? I was just say it's cool that you got out to Var Island. We uh, we wanted to go there, but we just didn't have the the time. I'd heard great things about it as well, so that's yeah. that's good to hear. I wanted to do at least one island this time. I'm trying to put together a workshop idea, and uh, 12 years ago I got out to three of the islands, and they're just really awesome, and so. The islands are great. You know, the inland parts are nice too, but I just wanted to make sure I had a little bit of a, a variety there. Uh, so I spent the evening in Navarre Town, and then unfortunately I bought my ticket too late to return the next day to Split. There was an 8 o'clock ferry that I wanted to take so I could do early morning shots in um, Navarre Town, but I wasn't able to do that, so I had to leave at 6.30. And then I got on the bus to go to Mostar. That's in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Did you happen to pass through there on your trip, Greg? Yeah, we did. We we stopped there for an afternoon. Um, we weren't there in the summer when they're diving off the bridge, but right. this is like kind of late November, like Thanksgiving-ish oh. really. And um, it was pretty bleak. Um, okay. that, that time of year, uh, at least, you know, this is 2011, um, people burn things for heat, um, especially right. when you get to Sarajevo, there's just a cloud of like campfire smoke. Okay. Uh, and, and most are... Uh, at least back then, was just destroyed from the war. Mm. We were standing outside the rubble of a school in front of an apartment building that still had sandbags where snipers were hiding. Oh my uh, goodness! With bullet holes and everything. So it's um, at least chunks of that city are really chewed up, and just mm-hmm. it gives you a sense for how horrible it was. And then there's other parts 
like the central parts around the bridge that people you know talk about a lot that are are really beautiful. So it has this really crazy range of yeah um, you know depressing and and inspiring aspects to the city. Absolutely. Now I, I didn't spend too much time there, and I only walked from the bus station down to Old Town. My room that I had rented through Airbnb was right across the street from a mosque. And so I got woken up at 530 in the morning, which, you know, hey, that's fine. It's a built-in alarm for me. It's fine. But I only actually crossed, uh, passed by one building that was pockmarked with a bunch of bullet holes. And that was probably a mile of a walk, uh, maybe two kilometers, somewhere in there. Uh, So at least in that corridor, a lot of it has been uh, refurbished. As you get out into some of the other areas, I'm sure there's going to be some other more war-torn areas that are still existing. Um, yeah, we we had ahead. kind of a, a circuitous uh, journey. I don't know if it's still the case, um, but there were no Google Maps of, of Bosnia sure. at the time, and uh, the in-car navigation we had had no maps. So we had about a, a two-inch by two-inch paper map of the entire oh. country of Bosnia, and that's what we used to navigate through the country, which which created a lot of interesting moments. Yes. Uh, for sure. And, and some of that, you know, really brought us to weird out of the way places. So I, I think we were definitely in areas of, of most are that if you're, you know, taking buses or public transit, you probably just wouldn't go unless you had your own yeah. personal vehicle and you're a little lost. That's a good point. I really did love Mostar and Bosnia Herzegovina myself and definitely want to go back. They also had some great information on some waterfalls and whatnot, other countryside places to visit. So definitely interested in returning to Bosnia Herzegovina. And, and, uh, and I would add to that, in my personal impression, I thought Sarajevo was so much more interesting than okay. most are. So if you like most okay. are, Sarajevo just has, I, I think, so much uh, more to it. Okay. Um, it just, uh, you could spend many, many days there and really enjoy it. So that's a, a fantastic city. Awesome. Good to know. Thank you. And then I took the bus to Dubrovnik. Uh, this also involves the border crossing. Uh, we had certainly had a border crossing going to Mostar and coming back. And we had... A nice little inspection of about six of on our bus had to get off. Thankfully, I was not one of them. Uh, but they just took them into this little room and went through all their stuff. Then we were finally on our way after about an hour's delay. So that was kind of annoying, but, you know, whatever. The The problem with it is then we get it back on the road and then you get on the highway to go back to go down to Dubrovnik. Well, there's this little tiny spit of land that Bosnia has that meets the Adriatic Sea. So you have another border crossing. And... Sometimes they just wave you through. This wasn't one of those times. We actually got our uh, passport stamped that time, which I thought was kind of silly because when I went initially in, they didn't stamp my passport. When I came out, they didn't stamp it, but this place they stamped. So I got in a little bit late to Dubrovnik compared to what I wanted to do, but Dubrovnik, let's face it, there's a reason they call it the Pearl of the Adriatic. It is definitely still got lots of its charm, lots of its character, lots of great places to go and shoot. There's a cable car that goes up the hill behind the city, behind the old town. Uh, There's the wall that you can walk around. There's just tons of things to look at uh, in the road, down the Stradoon is what they call it for the main uh, thoroughfare. It's only uh, foot traffic that's allowed in there, at least during the day. And you do have to get up early if you want to get pictures without people uh, and get that transitional time where people are starting to come in. You have to get up early, otherwise it's just an overload of people. Or go at a time like you did, like in November, and you're not going to have any problems uh, with people overrunning your shots. Yeah, we well. had we saw very few other tourists at that time of year in in any of these locations. And once you get beyond Dubrovnik, tourism falls way oh, yeah. way off. But yeah. uh, I mean, I, I cannot second enough your your endorsement of Dubrovnik. I think it is perhaps the most charming city I've ever visited in my life. It's just if you love that kind of old medieval feel you know stone walls stone streets it's just about as cool as it gets with the pedestrian Mm -hmm. area and then walking on top of the wall where you can walk around the city and look down on all of it oh yes oh my gosh i just and i think it's an overlooked destination too because you know people may think well it's difficult to get to but you can you know basically take a a boat across the adriatic from italy so a lot of people who are in italy very easy to get over to dubrovnik for a you know, very small extension to your trip. So really Absolutely. worth it. Whether you're coming from Bari or Venice, and there's one other location I can't think of in Italy, they have daily trips via ferry to Dubrovnik, Split, and Zadar, and other locations too, I'm sure, as you get further north. But definitely is a great, if you're if you're doing a little bit of Italy, think about at least doing a, a day or two 
coming across to Dubrovnik. That would be a great place to spend a day or two. And it's also cool, you know, you mentioned the wall, uh, getting some photographs of just someone whose house is right there. And they're in the wall. The, the, the wall is their porch, let's say, you know, because their house just comes right up to it and they have a door that leads right onto the, the public access area, you know, when they sell you a ticket. I just like, you know, that's, that's just unfair. <laughs> I want to live there. <laughs> so, so it's just, oh, it's just a great place. So tons and tons of stuff to shoot. And plus they have done a really good job with the recovering from the war. The tiles that they made to replace the war-torn areas uh, in Old Town uh, were a different color. So now uh, what they've done is they've mixed them up. So you have this patchwork of, of different colored tile. And that's just a, a really neat look to, to see as well. I got up to a few other places outside of uh, Dubrovnik too, but you know we're running a little long here. So just if you get a chance, it's a wonderful place to go shoot and definitely encourage people to consider Croatia for their next uh, journey if they're so inclined to head out internationally. And I would throw in, if you're there and you're willing to, to do some serious extra driving, um, but, but some additional um, legs you could consider, uh, the capital of Albania, Tirana, is mm. a super interesting place. We loved Albania. Uh, and then Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo. Okay. Really, really cool place to, to visit. We love those two. I just thought were like kind of surprise gems. We just okay. enjoyed them so much. Now, and, when you... and Pristina has this crazy library. If you look up their library, it's just all these sort of like uh, geodesic domes lit up with uh, mm. this kind of greenish color. It's just, it's really neat. Oh, that's awesome. Now, when you went, were you with other photographers or were you the only photographer in your group? It was just me and, and one friend who's not a photographer. Oh, okay. And this, you know, 2011, I, I wasn't quite as serious as I am. So if I went back to these areas, I would definitely approach them differently yeah. photographically, but I had a chance to shoot a lot. My friend was very supportive of photography. So, you know, he was willing to put up with, you know, weird times and hours and all that kind of stuff. It's important to have someone like that if you're traveling with someone else. Well, we're going to take a quick break here for a quick ad, and we'll be right back after this. This episode is sponsored by the Improve Photography Retreat 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. From March 20 to 22, come join us with some of your favorite photographers from the Improve Photography Network, also other popular photographers, and learn all kinds of topics from landscape photography to portrait photography to post-processing and beginner topics as well. The fun thing about the Improve Photography Retreat is that it's all hands-on. We want to get you shooting and spending time behind the camera and send you home with a great portfolio of images. Check it out at improvephotography.com and click on retreat at the top of the page. All right. So Greg, our next topic up is you spent some time shooting and comparing a few lenses. And I understand you're not completely done with your analysis, but one of the lenses you shot was the Sigma 14 F1.8. And what lenses did you put up against that? And tell us your basic ideas on that lens. Absolutely. And before I do that, uh, and Brent did not um, even hint at this or put me up to this in any way, but it was my first time, you know, kind of working with your service. And I thought that the the process was so smooth, the way you just receive it, shoot with it, throw it back in a box, slap the label, you ship with it and send it back. I, like I hate returning stuff to <laughs> Amazon or B&H, whatever. And, right. and they make the process pretty easy. I just think you made it as easy as possible. So so thanks for that. I, I thought it was a, oh, a really sweet. nice experience. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been shooting with the, uh, the Nikon 14 to 24 for years. And that's my go-to lens for shooting the Milky Way in the night sky. But it, it has some, some coma and, you know, aberrations with the stars that I just sort of felt like I'd love to see if there's a better option. And so wanted to do this head-to-head -head test. So put it head-to-head -head, uh, for shooting just the stars uh, against the, the Sigma Art 14mm f1.8, the, uh, the relatively new Rokinon SP. It's kind of their premium 14mm f2.4 lens. Uh, and then the uh, Zeiss Milvus 15mm f2.8 pretty broad range of lenses. I, there's a Tokina zoom that in retrospect, I probably should have tested as well because those other three lenses are essentially ultra wide fixed lenses. Yeah. And one thing I love about the Nikon is I can shoot 24 millimeters. So, it, you know, that, 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 I think there's a little of a miss for me not to test that lens, but very good range of lenses to try that are available for Nikon and Canon, all of those other than the Nikon lens. And it was interesting, you know, I came in, 
not knowing where the Sigma was going to land. You know, everyone's excited about the wide aperture, but I haven't read a lot of reports about it for night shooting. The Zeiss being this super high price monster compared to the others and its renowned mm-hmm. quality. And then Rokinon being this very much beloved, super cheap lens for Milky Way shooters, but having this reputation for you might have to buy three before you get a good one because sometimes the quality varies. But it, it was a cool test. And and the, the bottom line for me was the Sigma was the star. It was uh, a phenomenal lens. I loved the wide aperture on it, made it easier to properly focus at night okay. and gives the flexibility. For shooting the Milky Way, I would shoot that lens at f2.8 because at f1.4, you still get a level of coma that I think is comparable to the Nikon. You see, you get okay. that sort of like spread out winged star look. Okay. But, yeah, I was going to ask you for those who may not know, tell us what you mean by that. And it gets worse probably as you get closer to the corners, right? Yeah. So, so coma is basically you can imagine like someone smearing your stars if it looks like a, a comet a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is definitely much worse in the corners than the center of the lens. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it's a, a function of astigmatism. I don't really know what causes it, but all I care about is it doesn't look that great. Right. And some lenses are, are better than others. And if you shoot wide open, you're going to see more of it than when you, sh- you, when you stop the lens down a little bit. And so if you shoot the Sigma all the way wide open at F1.4, you're, gonna, you're not going to improve on the coma relative to the Nikon, but you are getting more than an extra stop of light gathering, which means you can reduce the noise or yeah. you can shoot with a faster shutter speed. And the low noise is great, but also the the faster shutter speed is excellent if you're going to shoot the Aurora because you know people Definitely. don't think about it, but the Aurora Borealis is moving and long shutter speeds make for kind of lifeless Aurora shots that everything blurs together. So I thought the Sigma, if you're going to shoot the Aurora, would be my choice. And then if you stop it down to f2.8 and put all the lenses at f2.8 because that's the, the sure. widest that they can all match and that's the aperture I use on the Nikon, the image quality I thought was the best of the bunch with uh, the Zeiss and the, and the Rokinon being very similar. I mean, I they're, they're all excellent and I thought a step up from the Nikon in terms of the coma. The Rokinon was cool in that it's, it's very lightweight. It was the lightest of the bunch, excellent image quality, and it's definitely the cheapest. It also has uh, an infinity lock. The Zeiss people know for having this rotate to infinity and it hits the stop and the Rokinon has that as well. And That's cool. if, you, if you've never used it, uh, people think you just rotate to infinity and now you're focused at infinity. Yeah. That's not true. Like even if that was true on a specific camera, each camera can have a slightly different infinity focus point due to like tiny little tolerances in the camera and it changes with temperature. So sure. I was shooting that lens, you know, at the beginning of the night and then by the middle of the night when the temperatures had dropped 20 or 30 degrees, the focus point had moved. Oh my. Um, and so, but the nice thing about that infinity is not that it's going to give you sharp stars. You, you just, if you put it in infinity and shoot, you're, you're rolling the dice. You may or may not get a sharp star. But what it does is it gets you so close that you can see the stars versus on the uh, the Sigma and the Nikon, you can rotate so far past infinity that the stars are just not even oh. visible on yeah. the live view on your camera. So for focusing on the stars, if you've ever tried to do it, it's really hard to see it on the live view. And I think both the, the Zeiss and the Rokinon made it very easy to get close enough that okay. it was very quick to find a bright star to focus on. So I like nice. that a lot. The uh, the Sigma was also nice because it was the the other autofocus lens. The Zeiss and the Rokinon are manual, so if you're right. shooting in the daytime, that's great. If you're shooting at night, the autofocus is not going to help you. The downside to the to the Sigma lens, though, it is heavy. It's the heaviest right. of the bunch. And if I was going to go backpacking or something like that to go shoot the stars, I would definitely pick the Rokinon over the Sigma. I mean, you're talking a, an extra pound, and that doesn't even sound a lot when you when you say it, but when you feel it, it's it's a it's, beast. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It definitely it adds is. up. Yeah. And then the, the Zeiss, you know, I, I, I can't say a bad thing about it. The image quality is excellent. I just, I couldn't say that it was like head and shoulders above the others or even better for the stars. Okay. And if I shot it in the full range of different conditions and I did shoot some sunrises and stuff and I haven't yet uh, really processed those photos. So it might be that the Zeiss in other conditions really shines through. Maybe it has better flare or, or other you know aspects to it. But for just shooting the uh, the Aurora or the Milky Way or Night Stars, I didn't see any reason to pay the the premium. I I sure. would say, you know, go with the the Rokinon if you want to 
save money or weight. Go with the Sigma if you want the best quality and go with the Nikon if you want to have that range to be able to hit 24 millimeters and a little bit more of an all-in-one lens. Plus it's autofocus, which, yeah. you know, for, for non-nighttime scenes is, is pretty nice sure. for sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's, um, I actually still have yet to be able to shoot that lens. I've been so busy myself. And then um, it went out for another review by someone else, uh, the Canon version did. And I know you shoot Nikon. So, so yeah, I have it back now finally. And I'm hoping I can get that lens shot myself here in the next week or two, because I would love to, to give that lens a try. Yeah, I would uh, keep an eye on the uh, Aurora watches and I would go mm -hmm. shoot the Aurora with that thing. I, I think you'd find it's probably like the cleanest shot you've ever taken of the Aurora. Awesome. Cool. Okay, our next topic today, we've got plenty of them going. How do you scratch that travel itch? And maybe another way to put it would be to say, how do you keep yourself sane when you're home? I found when I was away in Croatia, after about a week, I just wanted to be home with the wife and kids. And then I found that when I, once I was home, it took me about another week before I was like, you know, I wonder where I'll go next. <laughs> and <laughs> and so it's um it can be kind of uh it can be kind of trying. So I put a question out there on our Facebook group that said, you know, how do you do that? What what do you guys do to keep yourself sane? And some listeners said, you know, they listen to travel podcasts. Uh, others said they go to historic places nearby where they live, and that's something I enjoy doing as well. Uh, maybe they plan smaller trips or they just look at other people's work. You know, whether it's different sites, different apps, uh, possibly. Uh, to keep the um, to keep the interest and the and the sanity going for them. For myself, though, one big thing I really like doing I love travel books. My favorite author is Paul Thoreau, and he has written ever since like the seventies, I think. But he spent one time almost a year going in China, riding the Iron Rooster. He spent riding the train in China, and he wrote a book about it. And then he and he loves trains, by the way. I'm not really a train buff myself. It's just he happens to like trains. And then he rode the train from um, like London all the way, the, the Orient Express. He rode it all the way to, uh, forgetting where the destination was now, but anyway, um, all the way across Europe and Asia. And then he's also done another train ride from his home in the Boston area all the way down to Patagonia. Following someone along on a travel log like that, it's the best kind of, um, I don't know, lazy man's couch traveling that you can do, I guess. He really takes you away and is a fantastic author. His current book, the most recent book that I'm reading is called Deep South. He also gets into some of the um, racial type issues that, that are present in the uh, southern states in the U.S. And he's actually, as far as my opinion is concerned, one of the best authors, one of the best ways of presenting the issues that are existent and how uh, people are living in those, in those conditions. And it's a, just a great book. So Deep South is another one. A couple other authors are Bill Bryson and Tony Horwitz, but there's plenty of others too. I could just go on and on and bore you guys to death probably. So that's the way, that's one of the ways I keep myself kind of inspired and, and whatnot. But I also use authors like this to um, help plan trips as well. So I read a couple of books before I went to Croatia and it gives me such a great insight on a historic perspective anyway, about their culture and about who these people are that I'm traveling uh, amongst. So I find that to be very helpful. How about you, Greg? What do you do? Well, I was going to add to that. You know, I think it's so important to try and go a layer deeper than just the the things you see as a tourist, whether it's oh, yeah. reading the history or, or meeting people when you're there, because it's so easy to go to a place and completely miss what it's about. Um, so it's cool, yes. it's cool you read those things like that. I, I think that's just um, some of my favorite experiences are just reading about a place while I'm there or, or just uh -huh. meeting locals. You know, so, so when I travel... I guess I have two reasons I travel. If I, if I had to like think about my own travel passions analytically, one of course is to take photographs of interesting subjects in different places. And, and the other is just, you know, I'm just a very curious person. I'm kind of an explorer by nature and I love to be challenged and, and pushed to think differently. And I, travel is the best education. Mm, absolutely. Um, so, I, so I think you kind of hit on, on that piece with the reading. So on the, on the photography side, cause it's, obviously it's a photography podcast you know, I think sometimes people want to travel because you have these visions in mind of photographs you want to take. And it's maybe you've seen someone's inspiring work and, and you want to go there and, and do your version of it or explore other things. And, uh, you know, what I find sometimes is 
you almost have so much of an expectation of what you're going to do or this mission you have that it can get a little bit in the way of your creativity. It seems creative because for you, it's a totally different subject. Yeah. But sometimes you're not really challenging yourself. You feel like you need to go to some exotic location to get a unique standout photo. And I find that probably some of my best growth as a photographer is trying to just work with the beauty that's in my own backyard or, you know, relatively nearby and think about it. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you could plunk me down in any one of the 50 States. And if that was my home, I would go out and try and find things that people have not shot or things I'd never heard of and just go explore with different light compositions. And I, th- I think that's where the growth is. It's very easy to take a, a good shot of a known or outstanding subject. It's very easy to fail trying to just go out without you know putting the most amazing subject in the world in front of your camera and i think that's where a lot of that growth is when you start to fail and struggle and push yourself so for me when i'm not traveling a lot of times i am trying to think about you know where can i go in minnesota and i'll sometimes just kind of go off without any particular destination or other times i'll just do my own kind of primary research which a lot of times is looking at satellite images or maps and trying to figure out like, hey, seems like this would be an interesting mountain or location or area. And it's a little bit of a gamble, but you do some planning. And so for me, sometimes that's kind of that alternative. And and honestly, I've been doing a lot of it this past year now that I'm a full-time photographer. And I think that's a big piece of why my images have improved so much over the last year is that I'm pushing myself creatively and and breaking free of some of my pre-existing notions or some of those elements you have where you replicate known things or go to the kind of those easy destinations. Yeah, that's that's good because it's a little bit, bit inspiring for myself as well because I have a huge backyard syndrome type idea. But in a, in reality though, it's about limited to about within a half an hour's drive of home because once I kind of break that barrier, everything's fresh and new again so to speak. But if I, you know, were just to force myself to go downtown, let's say, in our little town, historic town of Walla Walla, or, you know, out in the wheat field or whatever else, I know I can find something there that's going to be a good photograph. It's just, I don't, I I find myself not pushing that direction. And then you don't grow when when you do that. And so definitely it's a good thing to, uh, I like that advice. Find out what you can do there, right, right in your backyard. That would, that would be good. You know, the other thing, I I haven't done this yet, but one of the projects I have in the back of my head is to pick a, a subject and just shoot it five or 10 times yeah. because it's the same experience where the first two or three times you probably think of interesting compositions or unique ways of shooting it. But pretty soon you you check off the easy ideas mm-hmm. and you really got to work for it. So I, I, I think those growth moments are, they're pretty cool. They're, they're sort of intimidating and frustrating and you can procrastinate and push it off. But whenever I do them, I'm always glad I did. And then how better will your pictures be when you do travel somewhere? You've had that experience of going beyond, you know, what we might consider the average, the, you know, whatever's before you, and you'll maybe see it in a different light, and that that would be a great thing too. Yeah, it's you know, I'm always impressed when someone shows me a unique take on something. Like, I, I think there's no more interesting subject that way than the Eiffel Tower because. Mm it must be the most photographed object on the planet. I can't imagine (laughs) it's gotta be right. It's like the icon of the most touristed city in the world. And you know, every like one or two years, someone puts up a photograph of the Eiffel tower that I look at and say, wow, that is totally different than anything I've seen. And I'm just amazed that with so many people shooting that thing, that people are still able to come out with images that can impress. And I I think that's, there's some really good learning there when you try just think differently. Good deal. Thank you. So we had a listener question come in. Greg, I know you've got a lot of experience in this area too, so I'll let you take the lead on this. But the question is, how do you take your raw images with you on the road and easily transfer those images between catalogs or computers or otherwise? And this specific question came in with the idea that not from just, you know, you're out on the road and you're shooting and then you bring those images home. It's that you've got your images on your main computer at home. They're on an external storage like a Drobo or some other NAS or something like that. But if you travel a lot for work, how do you get those images to travel with you and not screw up your Lightroom catalog? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the answer here is going to come down to a little bit of a budget question, depending on what people have um, 
for storage options when they travel. But uh, I, I can envision a few different ways you do it. And I'll, then I'll mention the way I do it. You know, one way is you can duplicate your files and take them with you, right? Whether that's on your hard drive in your laptop or as an external drive, some sort of mobile right. drive, ideally a solid state drive if you can for speed, but it, you know, any drive, you can get a pretty high capacity, you know, spinning drive for less than a hundred bucks. Right. I think if you're going to duplicate the images that has the benefit of if anything happened to your stuff on the road, you don't have to worry about a backup. I personally actually, all my images are in a single Lightroom catalog. And I know some people think that's just nuts, but I've got everything backed up where I just never have to worry about it. And I actually, at home, my work sits on an external drive. I just have way too many images to fit all on my laptop. And I, in Lightroom, can open uh, multiple drives. You can um, have your primary drive, and then you can have these other drives showing. So I just drag the folder from the external drive up to my internal drive, and it moves those images within the catalog Mm-hmm. So for me, it's literally drag and drop and then let it just finish moving the files and I'm good to go. And I will make sure I've done a clone of my computer before I travel. So if my computer got stolen or broken or whatever, right. uh, you know, I'm not going to worry about that. That's the the big watch out. But once you've moved them over to your computer, you just keep using them. So I, I move them to the internal drive on my computer. I have enough space to do that. Yeah. If you don't have enough space, then obviously you're going to have to think about some sort of external option. And I think the solid state is definitely the way you'd want to do it if possible. Cause if you're working off one of those spinning drives with the size of files these days, yeah, uh, that workflow is going to be really slow. That's what I do, <laughs> but I'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a minute. So it sounds like you have one computer and your, your big disc, as we'll call it is sitting at your desk in your home office. And so you just still take that one computer with you. Is that the case? It is. So I've got a MacBook Pro. It has two terabytes uh, of sure. storage. So it's very easy for me. I don't have to think about it too hard, but I actually rarely get over one terabyte I'm actually using at any point. Right. So, you know, that, and that's why I say it kind of depends on your budget because a one terabyte solid state drive is still a lot of money. A lot of people have internal drives that are like 250 gigs or so. Um, so you do have to think about that. You know, so if you do have like that external drive, uh, you know, I'd probably think about maybe, you know, the one file I'm going to work on today, transfer it from the external drive to the internal faster solid yeah. state drive. If you have one, edit it, then you can move it out. So, you know, it's you, you'll spend a little more time moving files if you don't buy the the higher end drives. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, yeah. you know, it's it's not an unreasonable thing to do. It's just kind of a question of how much are you willing to pay for the convenience? I hear you. So do you have any recommendations if you have more than one computer, though? Let's say they have a desktop computer for their normal work and you need to take them on your 13-inch laptop, let's say, when you're on the road. Well, you can a few ways you can approach it. Again, if you've got the budget, you can use um, you know, uh, an external drive that's shared between the computers. And uh, a lot of people like using uh, what's known as network-attached storage. It's basically a, a drive that sits on your network like a Synology drive can do that. There's, there's many different drives that will do that. I don't personally use that, but I, I hear great things from people who do. If you don't have that, if you just have like, you know, one external drive you plug in, you can just transfer the files manually computer to computer. Right. Or people don't necessarily know this, but you can actually select a bunch of files in Lightroom and export them as a catalog. Yes. Uh, and that is probably the way that I would go if I, if I didn't have like some kind of common library synced between the computers, which is not hard to do, but it's not straightforward if you're, if you don't, you know, if you're not a little bit more of an advanced user. So exporting them as a catalog is a great way. So you just would export from your computer to a thumb drive or your external drive or whatever physical media gets you from one computer to the other. And then you can just open that catalog and work on it in Lightroom or whatever tool you use and then reverse the process later. And that's like a temporary type catalog too. I I think is how you would want to treat it in your mind. So when you get back, you want to then import that catalog back into your master catalog. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You can also, um, in Lightroom, you can set up a preference where it has what's known as sidecar files. So by default, Lightroom saves all of the changes you make to the raw images in one database, which also creates the risk that if the database gets corrupted, all your changes can be lost if you're not backed right. up. Or you can set a preference that saves everything as these sidecar files, which creates a little tiny file next to every raw file you've edited. Mm-hmm. And then if you're opening that file with Photoshop in Camera Raw, all those same exact 
changes are are there. So that's another convenient way to to work. So there's a a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, I think I've heard of some people where they do copy those files over, they work on them, then when they move them back, the changes aren't there. And that's because those sidecard files weren't told to be written. And so they're not going to be copied as, as well. So my solution to this whole thing, because I have two main computers that I go th- go uh, between, but then I have a third one when I'm traveling. I actually sort of, quote unquote, steal the 13-inch MacBook from work. I use that one. So I actually have my catalog and my main unedited images. And by unedited, I mean I haven't selected the keepers yet. I have those on a external spinning hard drive. And I can plug that into any computer that runs Lightroom, and I don't have to worry about copying anything over as it relates to anything about the catalog or anything like that. You definitely need to think about your safety of that catalog file, though, because what would happen if this hard drive were to get stolen, if it were to go corrupt, if it were to get lost in a, you know, I dropped it or whatever. So I have two backups at two different locations. So I'm able to do that because I have a computer at home and I have a computer at work that has a large enough backup disk to also back up that drive. So it's a four terabyte external drive. And I think it was four terabyte, maybe it's two terabyte, but anyway, it's a large external drive and that's what I use. Uh, and that's my primary. So uh, as far as where the catalog is, so it's a little more simple if you're looking for multiple computers. I like your uh, solution, Greg, because you have a single computer that you're doing for everything. And that's even the simplest way I would say to do it, just because you don't even have to worry about the external drive with your catalog on it. It's a little bit slower as far as the performance is concerned. I do have one of those 500 gigabyte drives, the SSD drives. I'm tempted to go ahead and see if I can fit all of my unedited images and my catalog on that because it would be faster. And if I can do that, then it would probably be worth it for me to transfer onto that 500 gig drive. But I used that 500 gig drive actually when I went to Croatia. I did basically what you kind of did. I put everything on that 13 inch computer, including the catalog. I just copied the catalog file onto it. And then I used that little SSD drive to just be a time machine backup for my computer. And then I had a very small tidy backup that I could keep separate from my computer in case one of them got stolen. I still had a copy of my images. So that was the way I approached it. So there, there's two other ways I can think to do this that may be worth exploring for, for different people. Uh, have you ever used um, Lightroom's ability to sync your work in the cloud? I have not, mostly because my uh, account with Lightroom is based off of the school and we have an enterprise account okay. and we don't have those same functionalities in our particular account. We have enterprise education and there's a little bit limitations on that. So when we get into some of those more options that are available on the commercial side, that's not something I'm able to experience. Okay. Well, I can't speak from experience here because I haven't worked with Lightroom across multiple computers, but in theory, you should be able to mark certain catalogs or certain folders and say, hey, I want to sync to this to the cloud and then be able to work across multiple computers on the same stuff. So that is certainly worth looking into. I couldn't say... If, how easy or not that workflow is. I assume it's pretty easy, but I haven't tried it. And then the, the other one, if all you're going to do is maybe uh, review and call images or make changes in Lightroom, you don't have to take the images with you if you're using smart previews. Right. Uh, and not everyone takes advantage of that, but, but a smart preview basically gives you the full ability to do everything you normally do in Lightroom on a file so tiny, it's as if you're not taking anything with you. Yeah. So my entire catalog is a smart preview. So I might bring with me one or two photo shoots that those are photo shoots that I'm able to open up in Photoshop because I have the original file and I can edit in Photoshop, but I can still access every single other file. So if I need to start making raw changes or I want to export for social media, those are all things I can do on the road. I just don't have access to the full resolution file and I can't edit in Photoshop right. uh, from that. But but for some people, that's really all you need. Right. Uh, and if you plan your workout, you could say, hey, maybe maybe I'll do that kind of work on the road versus save the Photoshop work for when I'm back home with my Wacom tablet and big screen and all that kind of stuff. That's a good point with those smart previews and definitely something I think that is overlooked. Even for myself, as as this question came in, I was thinking, hmm, smart previews might be what this person needs because that way you only have to take your catalog and the previews file uh, with you on the road. And that would still be fine to have, say, on an external drive or what have you. But that is important to think about too. You know, what do I need when I take smart previews with you, with me? 
that is your catalog file. And then buried within that folder of your catalog, there's going to be a previews file there. And it's just one single file uh, that gets really big because it has every preview of every image in that file. So you would need those items. Oh, I should say it can get really big. And so a, a, li a library like a travel photographer might have hundreds of uh, images from hundreds of locations. It's going to be a big, pretty big file. Yeah, I think my my smart previews, last time I checked, I want to say it's on the order of like one or 200 gigabytes, sure. which is huge. But I have about 130,000 images in that Whoa. catalog. Holy cow, so. you shoot a lot more than me. <laughs> oh, and I've cut a lot out to get down to that number. I probably... I'm sure I've taken closer to 300,000 over time. Yeah, but but th that is a great way to go. Just, you know, for folks who are going to go that way, just make sure you check the little option when you're importing images to create the smart previews. And then keep in mind that if you go and edit in Photoshop, there, at least currently, there's no option in Lightroom to automatically create a smart preview. So I have a, I have a smart collection that, that shows me all of my images that don't have a smart preview. Oh, cool. And before I travel, I just open that smart collection. I select all the images and I hit the button to render the smart previews. Otherwise, I might go on the road and then like all the images that I've edited that are my favorite ones to go share on social media are offline and not available. Very good. This has been quite the show, Greg. It's about time to wind it down. And we like to close with dream destination of the week. What do you have for us? It's a place that I've been but it, it's still a dream of mine. And, and that is Iceland. I went back in 2000 and really didn't photograph it. And I would love to go back and do it right. So, yeah. so my dream vacation is actually a return to one of my favorite places on earth. Awesome. Iceland. Yeah. Mine is possibly some are going to think it's an odd location. Vladivostok, Russia. The reason I choose that is partly because uh, my brother, who's a pilot, he had a, just a, a recent gig flying people out to the Aleutian Islands, and that got me looking on the map and just dreaming and whatever else. And, you know, just it's pointing almost the Aleutian chain right at Vladivostok. And I was like, you know, a long time ago, I wanted to go there just because it's the, you know, furthest east you can get in Russia and big city, almost Siberia kind of an idea. It just had that, I don't know, I don't want to say it was romantic thoughts or, you know, like, oh, it's so wonderful. But it just seemed like it had a lot of good things going for it that were unique and totally out of our um, Western eyes comfort zones kind of thing. So Vladivostok, Russia would be an interesting place to get to. Unfortunately, we don't have any direct flights from Seattle or anywhere else on the West Coast, but oh well, sometime maybe. Well, when you make it, I want to see photos because I have uh, no yeah. idea what's there. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I actually have zero clue what's there. It's just, that's the romantic part of it. It's just like, it's fun to say and it's on the Kamchatka Peninsula. It would just be awesome. So hopefully one day I can make it. I don't know if you're prepared, Greg, for a, a saying goodbye in a, in a certain language, but I'm going to go ahead and choose Russian. And the best as I can get it is proche. <laughs> well, I would go with Italian. Ciao. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate your tuning in and uh, making it this far with us this time around. And we will see you uh, next time in another month or so uh, for Latitude, the travel photography podcast. Happy shooting. Views expressed on this program by independent host guests and callers do not necessarily reflect their views of improved photography LLC or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where a commission is earned.